Hi, welcome to The Halfling. I'm your host, Jaron Pack, and this is episode 11, Elrond and Rivendell. Last time, we introduced a character that, on the surface, requires no introduction at all. Elrond is a staple of all of Tolkien's writings. He hosts Bilbo and the dwarves on their way to the Lonely Mountain. He calls a last-minute council to decide the fate of the One Ring. He becomes Aragorn's father-in-law. The guy is just all over the place. But, of course, as we dug into the early days of the half-elven counselor, we found that there are actually a lot of things that Elrond does behind the scenes, on top of all of that other stuff. Unless you're an avid reader of Tolkien's supplementary or posthumously published material, most of this information never reaches the surface. Digging it up and cobbling it together, though, creates a much more thorough picture of an elven hero that is much more than a dude hanging out in Rivendell with some nuggets of wisdom to share here and there. We've already gone over Elrond's earliest days. He was born at the tail end of the First Age, where he witnessed the dramatic events that led up to the War of Wrath and the defeat of Morgoth. During that time, He was captured, as a six-year-old elven child no less, and held as a high-profile prisoner during an elven civil war. His parents were lost at sea, and he ended up being raised by his captors. Eventually, the specifics of Elrond's day-to-day life are lost in the apocalyptic end-of-the-age shuffle. The region of Beleriand, where he was living, is slowly flooded, and Elrond joins a large migration of elves, men, dwarves, and all sorts of other creatures, who head east to escape the calamity. When the chaos stops, the land has been reshaped into the modern Middle-earth map that we're all used to, and Elrond has landed in an elven kingdom called Lindon, away in the upper left-hand corner of that map. In fact, Lindon is in the area right to the left of what later becomes the Shire. In that new realm, Elrond becomes super important. He's a really, really big dude. In fact, for a while he's almost always mentioned right alongside the region's ruler, the High King Gilgalad. Now, in typical immortal fashion, the story gets really long and quiet at this point. The pair of wise elves rule their kingdom for, like, several centuries in peace. Morgoth is gone, the world is done reshaping itself, for now at least. The elves are living relatively peaceful lives. All is good. Then, one day, this guy named Anatar shows up in Lindon, offering to help Elrond and Gilgalad. The pair of leaders are uncomfortable with this stranger. He's good-looking, like, weirdly good-looking, and he calls himself the Lord of Gifts. He's apparently traveling around offering legitimately valuable gifts of knowledge, wisdom, and craftsmanship to the elves of Middle-earth. Which, who on earth does that? Gilgalad and Elrond feel the same way, and they decide this Anatar guy just isn't trustworthy. They shut the door on him and even go so far as to send messengers to the nearby elvish kingdoms, warning them to be careful if this solicitous fellow called Anatar shows up on your doorstep offering you some gifts. And yeah, that's definitely the right call, because Anatar definitely isn't legit. In fact, he's none other than Sauron himself. Now, when I say Sauron, you have to think bigger than a glowing eyeball on a tower, or even a ghostly apparition, or a dude dressed in black armor. Sauron is a very powerful Maiar, that is, one of the angelic spirits that descended into Middle-earth at its beginning to help shape the world. Early on, he's corrupted by Morgoth and serves as his second-in-command for ages. I'll have to do a series on Sauron at some point, too, because, like Elrond, his early history is chock-full of crazy stuff. For our purposes here, though, at the end of the First Age, 
the mantle shifts from the now-defeated Morgoth to his lieutenant, Sauron. Of course, the good guys just won a world-shattering victory, and Sauron has practically no resources at his disposal, so he books it out of the sinking Beleriand and lays low for a while. How long? About a thousand years or so, but who's counting, right? Now, it says in the text that he actually starts stirring about 500 years into the age, but we don't get too many details. It isn't until a thousand years into the second age that Sauron decides that his prolonged sabbatical really is over. Throughout this process of resurgence, Sauron takes a look around and realizes that after defeating Morgoth, the Valar, remember, those are like the Maiar, but they're also the angelic guardians of the world, so kind of high-level Maiar. Yeah, anyways, the Valar, they seem to have just abandoned Middle-earth and headed back to their comfy digs in the Blessed Realm away in the west. And Sauron figures that, hey, I mean, if they're not interested in keeping the peace, then, you know, I think I'm going to start stirring up trouble and stuff. He picks out this lovely plot of land called Mordor to serve as his home base, and he starts quietly building up his power on the fringe of the newly shaped world. As he does this, though, he realizes that it's going to take a really long time before he's ready to take on the kingdoms of elves away up in the north, not to mention those upstart Numenorians away out in the water on their island, and actually be able to, you know, defeat them. So he decides to do some good old subterfugian trickery to grease the wheels for his eventual conquest of the continent. This is the point where Sauron uses his still considerable power to clothe himself in a physical body that is really good-looking. In the Silmarillion, it describes him by saying that, quote, his hue was still that of one both fair and wise, end quote. It also says, quote, only to Lindon did he not come, for Gilgalad and Elrond doubted him and his fair seeming, and though they knew not who in truth he was, they would not admit him to that land, end quote. While Sauron is rejected in Lindon, though, elsewhere the hunky stranger is welcomed with open arms. This makes it a bit awkward when messages from Lindon arrive warning them against the newbie on the block. But Sauron, or, or Anatar, sorry about that, is a pretty clever guy. And the messages set off a sort of PR propaganda war between Gilgalad and Elrond on the one side, and Anatar on the other. Now, I'm not kidding. There's literally a whole chunk of text in the Silmarillion where Anatar kind of innocently is like, I don't get why they're so stubborn and hostile toward me. I mean, I'm just trying to help. I guess they're just more interested in being right than helping others. Anyway, in the back and forth, it's worth pointing out that Elrond receives a direct mention, which shows that he's on the Dark Lord's radar. In the Silmarillion, Anatar name drops our hero by saying, quote, Wise in all lore is Master Elrond. End quote. Sure, he's saying this to make the hero look bad, but still, it implies that even at this early point, Elrond already has a serious reputation as a lore master and a wise leader. Anyway, long story short, while he doesn't get into Lindon, Anatar does seduce a group of elves and their leader, Celebrimbor, who'll also get his own series soon, I hope. These elves live in a nearby kingdom called Erigion. Now, I know there are a lot of names and geography flying around here, but the area of Erigion is actually an easy one to peg. This is the region that the Fellowship of the Ring passes through before they reach Moria. Remember the old ruin where those crow-like birds spy on them in the movies? Yeah, that's Erigion. At this point, though, the land is filled with life-bringing elves, and it's a much more vibrant place. Their leader is huge into crafting, too, like it's his thing, and he gets a ton of valuable information from Anatar. In fact, they have such good chemistry that the two dudes join forces and create a bunch of magical rings. Yeah, those rings. Not the ring, though. Not yet. 
See, after he helps the elves create these nifty rings, Sauron goes and secretly forges his own ring in Mordor, with the goal to dominate and control the will of the elves wearing the rings that he helped them make. As soon as this is done, though, Celebrimbor, who really is a talented guy and a good egg in spite of being duped by Sauron, well, he realizes that he's been tricked and immediately rejects Sauron. It might be too late at this point, but at least he does the right thing in the end. Anyways, the Dark Lord is furious that Celebrimbor turns on him, and he prepares to attack and claim the rings, including three rings that Celebrimbor made without his help. These the Elven Lord wisely sends to new protectors, with two of them going to Gilgalad in Lindon. Alright, I know that's a lot, and we'll break that whole event down in more detail in other episodes. For now, suffice it to say, Anatar tricks the elves of Aregion into making rings. Then he makes his own ring to control those rings. Celebrimbor figures out the plan in time to hide the three elven rings that he made before Sauron comes looking for the rest. Now, once again, timing is important here. Sauron doesn't attack Celebrimbor like two seconds later. He slowly gathers his forces and attacks the elves 93 years later. And, of course, when Sauron arrives in the area, our boy Elrond is ready to go and at the center of the action. Now, two years into the fighting, Sauron attacks an area called Eriador. Which, if you're looking at a map, is basically the big area of land in the north between Lindon on the coasts in the west and the Misty Mountains away to the east. This is too close for comfort for Gilgalad, and he sends a portion of his soldiers under the command of Elrond to help resist the invaders. By the time Elrond arrives near Sauron's armies, though, Eregion has already been overrun, and Sauron has captured the rings, except for the three elven rings, and he's also killed Celebrimbor. With an entire elven kingdom in ruin and a hostile army nearby, Elrond doesn't attack. He's completely outgunned and he doesn't stand much of a chance no matter what happens. However, the presence of his organized military force does attract a lot of scattered soldiers and refugees. When Sauron realizes that the three elven rings are hidden, he lashes out in fury on the nearest target he can find, Elrond's little army of fugitives. In Unfinished Tales, it explains the situation by saying that, in black anger, Sauron, quote, turned upon the forces of Elrond. Elrond had gathered such few of the elves of Aregion as had escaped, but he had no force to withstand the onset, end quote. In this darkest of moments, Tolkien applies his favorite literary device, the catastrophe. This is a term coined by Tolkien himself, which, in essence, implies a sudden turn in fortune when certain defeat is turned into sudden victory. The eagles arriving at the Battle of Five Armies is a catastrophe. So are the Rohirrim, and later Aragorn, showing up in the nick of time at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. In this case, Elrond is saved when a group of dwarves and elves show up from out of nowhere and attack Sauron from behind. Where did these life-saving friends come from? Why, from Khazad-dûm, of course. See, Eregion is right next to Moria. Remember, the Fellowship decides while they're in Eregion that they're going to seek out the hidden gate of Moria. Well, during this time, Khazad-dûm, which is the original name for Moria, is still in its heyday. It's full of dwarves, and they are good friends with many of the elves, both in Eregion and Lothlorien, who live on either side of their mountain kingdom. Well, the elves of Lothlorien also send reinforcements to help fight Sauron. These go through the dwarven kingdom of Khazad-dûm, and, along with an army from that kingdom, pour out of the gates and catch Sauron's armies off guard. Now, I need to clarify that all of this part of the story comes with one big asterisk. 
The account of Elrond being attacked and saved into Region comes in a version of Tolkien's writings that is included in the book Unfinished Tales. While it was written by Tolkien and officially published as part of the Middle-earth canon, though, the story clearly was still very underdeveloped, or unfinished, when Tolkien died. So there's a good chance that some of these details would have changed if the professor had been able to write a final version, or 50 final versions as he was inclined to do. Of course, those of you who have been listening for a while know that this is often the case with many of the facts that we use in these stories. But in this event in particular, the details of this portion of the text are really difficult to fit in with other versions of the material. They conflict, and there are points where they just don't line up. Now, with that said, most of the information that I just gave you is the only version out there. It's not like there's ten versions of Elrond being saved in Eregion. That is included as a detail in a larger chunk of text that actually has to do with Galadriel and Celeborn, and there are multiple versions of that story right in the one book itself. In the middle of all this confusing stuff, though, there's this one little chunk that talks about Elrond's army in this event. And it's the only one out there, so it doesn't conflict with much else. So we're going to take it as an official part of the story. Elrond is attacked by Sauron and is saved from destruction when the dwarves of Khazad-dûm and the elves of Lothlorien sally out and attack the Dark Lord from behind. Sauron leaves Elrond alone for the time being and turns to attack these new pests, and, truth be told, he's still way too strong for either group to have a hope of defeating him. In fact, after doing their distracting job, the dwarves and elves beat a hasty retreat back into Khazad-dûm, where they shut the magic gates and Sauron's orcs and trolls can't get in. In the meantime, while Elrond isn't destroyed, he's definitely still defeated. In Unfinished Tales, it says that, quote, Elrond was able to extricate himself, but he was forced away northwards. And it was at that time, in the year 1697, according to the Tale of Years, that he established a refuge and stronghold at Imladris, Rivendell. End quote. That's right. We've officially come to the founding of Rivendell itself. It's hard to believe it when you think of the peaceful elven escape of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, but at its genesis, Rivendell, or Imladris in the Elvish, is actually founded in the middle of a war. Not just that, it becomes a critical focal point in the war effort itself. It continues to attract refugees as Sauron hunts down the scattered men and elves in the area. This means before long, Elrond has a sizable number of soldiers at his disposal in his new stronghold. In the rest of the area, though, Sauron is completely victorious. Eriador is overrun, and eventually, the Dark Lord and his armies come up against Lindon, away in the northwestern coast of the land. Even without Elrond, whose soldiers are cooped up away in Rivendell still, Gilgalad still has the resources to put up a fight, at least for a while. But just like everywhere else, the situation deteriorates, and it looks like Sauron is going to be completely victorious again. And then, lo and behold, another catastrophe appears from out of nowhere. This time, though, it's the men of Numenor who arrive in Lindon in the nick of time. Gilgal had sent a call for help earlier, and now the overpowered men of the island nation land on the mainland and join forces with Gilgalad. The dynamite combo is far too much for Sauron's armies. They're crushed, and as they retreat, the surviving elements suddenly find themselves trapped by another army, led by none other than Elrond out of Rivendell. This utterly defeats Sauron's initial attempt to conquer the continent. However, the Dark Lord does have most of the Rings of Power at this point, and he heads back to Mordor to plan his next move. In the meantime, Gilgalad calls a council. Interestingly, there's a footnote in the text that calls this, quote, the first white council, end quote. But Christopher Tolkien clarifies that this isn't the same group that gathers during The Hobbit. 
although it may be where that group gets its namesake. Anyway, this proto-white council decides that this nifty new stronghold called Rivendell is really helpful, so they officially make it part of the Elven Defense Network, and Gilgalad puts Elrond in charge, making him his official vice-regent of the area. It's at this point that he also gives him one of the three elvish rings to help him with the job, but we'll talk about that in the next episode. For now, suffice it to say that Elrond is put in charge of guarding Eriador for Gilgalad. He has an elven ring and rules from his up-and-coming new fortress of Rivendell. Sauron is defeated and licking his wounds back in Mordor, too. While there's a lot of damage to clean up, and the kingdom of Eregion is no more, overall things ended much better than they could have. And we're just halfway through the Second Age at this point, too. But we also happen to have come to the next big immortals live really long lives and do things really slowly gap in Elrond's story. So, we're going to leave our hero here for the moment, building up his first independent command and enjoying his newfound power as one of the premier elven leaders this side of the Misty Mountains. Next week, though, we'll see Sauron make the first of his many comebacks. Elrond will be ready for the challenge as his new fortress becomes the primary gathering point for the last alliance of elves and men that is formed to stop the Dark Lord once and for all. That's it for now. Until next time, friends. This episode is brought to you by, well, me. And despite the fact that I've memorized whole chunks of Tolkien at this point, it still takes quite a bit of work to pull each of these together. There are also some recurring expenses that come with keeping the show on the air. So, if you're interested in helping, I set up a way to toss a few dollars toward covering costs. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash thehalfling. That's buymeacoffee.com slash thehalfling. If you make a donation, thank you very much. And either way, I hope you'll stick around for all the fun. All right, that's it for now. Until next time, friends.